The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Welcome to today's episode, which will likely deal with some dark topics and sometimes sweary words. So listener discretion is always advised. For ad-free and bonus episodes, click in the link in the show notes for exclusive content. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com or by giving me a rate, writing a review, or subscribing to future episodes. And with all my marketing blah 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 out of the way, on with the show. A Million Other Choices is a true crime podcast, and as such, we do discuss some dark topics that might be triggering for some. As you are a true crime listener, I support you in your curiosity. However, having lost a family member to homicide, my message is always to remember not just the victims, but the families and friends left behind, and also the officers, detectives, and prosecutors that work tirelessly for justice. There are links to make monetary donations in the show notes, but more importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please tell your friends and press that fifth star on your listening platform to help me grow the show. I hope you enjoy the following episode. The newspapers are just talking blood, rape, everybody's up in the air about it. Saskatoon was desperate to convict somebody. Hello and welcome to A Million Other Choices. I am your host, Kim. This is another one of those stories where finding information about the victim herself was really difficult part of this research. Once again, the events that happened after this young woman's murder completely eclipse the victim. A victim that deserves to have her story told. As I get into the story, my Canadian listeners will recognize some names, but you likely don't know the first victim's story as much as you know the story of some of the other players. The events of this story remain a blight on our Canadian justice system and a reminder of what can happen when we get tunnel vision and stubborn. It is a story that I could tell in probably 10 or 20 minutes if I wanted to skip some of the details and just tell you the gist of it, but I'm really going to take my time with this one and give you as much information as I could dig up so that you get a full picture of the events. 
This is the murder of Gail Miller. Gail was the second born in a line of eight children of Milton and Jean. Milton was 13 years older than Jean, and together they had two boys and six girls. And they lived in a town called Laura, Saskatchewan, which is a small hamlet about 60 kilometers southwest of Saskatoon. There used to be an old abandoned church there that people would stop and take photos of. In fact, there are actually a lot of old abandoned buildings there and makes a great setting for some pretty amazing photographs. Unfortunately, the church has been torn down now. Anyways, when she was 19, Gail moved to Saskatchewan on her own. She had trained as a certified nursing assistant in Swift Current, and in September of 1968, she got a job at the city hospital working in the pediatric unit. And she moved into a boarding house on 130 Avenue O South, which I googled and street viewed, and it appears to still be standing a two-story white clapboard house that literally looks like boarding houses you see in the movies. Boarding houses were very popular in the 1950s and 60s, but due to changing zoning regulations, they've kind of gone by the wayside now. Gail was a creature of habit. So on the morning of January 31st, 1969, a freezing cold day, even by Canadian standards of minus 40 degrees Celsius below, Gail looked out the front window of the house and decided to bundle up well, putting on a long overcoat and then bounded down the front steps and headed for the bus stop on 20th Street at 6.45 a.m. like she did every workday morning. The bus stop was exactly one block south of her boarding house, so she would have left from the front door and walked straight down the sidewalk, crossing 21st Street and continuing down to St. Mary's Church, where she would have turned left onto 20th Street. No one actually saw her leave that day, but that was her usual route. At 8.30 a.m., only about one and a half hours after she left her home, a 12-year-old girl on her way to school discovered her laying face down in the snow in the alley behind 211 Avenue, Avenue N South, which was about halfway between 21st Street and 20th, where she would have caught the bus. The child ran to the nearby funeral home to get help. Her body was face down wearing her winter coat, a full-length winter wool coat like a cape draped over her shoulders. The snow around her was trampled and stained red with blood. Her arms were out of her nursing uniform top, and the top itself had been rolled down to her waist, exposing her breasts. She had a number of stab wounds, and the snow around her was patterned in blood. Her underwear was bloodstained, and her girdle and stockings were rolled down to her ankles. She was only wearing her left boot. The stab wounds went through the, her thick overcoat, but there were no tears to the uniform itself, suggesting that she had been sexually assaulted and then stabbed. The blade of a paring knife was found under her body. The missing and broken handle was found in a nearby backyard. There were no fingerprints that could be lifted from the knife. Her missing clothing was found strewn throughout the alleyway, and her right boot and sweater were buried in the snow near her body. Her purse and its contents were found a couple of days later in a garbage can in the alleyway along with a blood-stained wool hat. Officers from the detective division around 
arrived around 11.40 a.m. They noted in their notepads that her face was distorted, her cheeks were sunken, and her lips protruding, which indicated that a hand had been held over her mouth. The 10-foot diameter circle of trampled snow and the blood all sort of told them that the crime was committed at that site. There was no, nothing to indicate that the body had been dragged to where it was found. On that same day, an unnamed female was walking between 20th Street on Avenue H at 7.07 a.m. while she was also walking to her bus stop and was assaulted by a man who grabbed her and ran his hands up and down her leg and then took off. The victim described her attacker as not young or old, wearing dark jacket, three quarters or half length, possibly a dark brown suede, and could have a fur collar. He was five foot five or five foot six tall, heavy build, seemed dark complexioned, dark hair with no hat, and did not speak. But she said she wouldn't have been able to identify the guy in a photo lineup. She said that she would have not reported the incident if not for hearing about Gail Miller's murder. Gail's investigative file contained a note about this incident that read, Indecent assault, not connected. An autopsy was done the same day on Gail's body that was brought to St. Paul's Hospital, and pathologist Harry Emson reported that Gail had multiple slashes to her throat and stab wounds to her upper torso. One of the stab wounds punctured her lung and was the cause of death. Vaginal swabs revealed the presence of sperm, and it was noted that the sperm was from a secretor in type A. The sperm was also what they refer to as non-motile, which is an indication of recent intercourse. Sperm motility is lost quite quickly in a living person, but more slowly in a dead body. He did note the absence of any pelvic injury, but indicated that this did not mean that Gail had consensual sexual intercourse because penile sexual intercourse does not usually cause injury in a woman of childbearing age. But the sample was thrown away. When it comes to bodily fluids, including sperm, a person is said to be a secretor if he or she secretes their blood type antigens into bodily fluids like saliva, mucus, or sperm. Whereas on the other hand, a non-secretor does not put, or if so, very little of their blood type antigens into those fluids. You are either one or the other. You don't go back and forth, sometimes secreting and sometimes not. So this would have been an important piece of evidence to retain. This technology and knowledge has been around since 1943, and 80% of the population are secretors and only 20% are not. To Empson's defense, in 1969, there was no protocol for saving bodily fluids. DNA testing was unavailable. A lab could have tested for blood antigens, but he simply couldn't remember whether or not he considered saving the sample and then didn't, or if he even considered it. There are four main blood types, A, B, AB, and O, and they are defined by their antigens, which are like proteins. Types A, B, and AB are expressed on the surface of red blood cells and in the case of secretors in other bodily fluids such as sperm or saliva. On February 4th, 1969, a detective Penkala returned to the murder scene and found two frozen lumps in the snow, one of which contained human pubic hair. The pathologist, Harry Empson, found that they contained some sperm, and fortunately, these samples were saved. 
Gail's case was assigned to Detective Raymond Mackey and Georgia Reed. It's important to note here that Mackey and Reed worked homicides. Sexual assault cases were worked by the morality division at that time, headed by Hilmner Nordstrom. Mackey and Reed canvassed the neighborhood for a six-block radius from where Gail's body had been found. They interviewed her roommates and male acquaintances she might have had and her co-workers at the hospital. A woman named Mary Gallucci told them that she took the bus every day on the corner of Avenue O and 20th Street. On Thursday morning, the day before the murder, a girl got on the bus. She was young, had dark hair, wore a white dress and stockings, dark coat, and a white scarf. Mary had seen that girl before on the same bus, and that same day, Mary saw a construction worker wearing blue jeans and a hard hat, possibly yellow, and he had come from Avenue O south of 20th Street and was a regular on that bus at the same time, but he didn't get on the bus. This man was tracked down on February 3rd, 1969 as Larry Fisher, who lived in the basement suite of a man named Albert Cadrain with his wife Linda and daughter Tammy, who was a baby at the time. Larry was asked if he saw anything, said that he had gone to work that morning as usual and hadn't seen or heard anything from the alleyway near the house. Linda, his wife, also said that she hadn't noticed anything unusual that morning. The bus driver, John Huslack, that drove the route that Gail normally took was interviewed as well, and he said that he would ordinarily have a male passenger on Avenue O and 20th who appeared to be a construction worker wearing a hard hat that he said was red and approximately 20 years old. However, that morning, he had not gotten on the bus. But none of this created any follow-up with Larry Fisher. Despite the fact that he lived in the vicinity of the murder, he worked a construction job and often wore a hard hat, And he caught the same bus as Gail Miller almost every day and yet wasn't on that bus the morning of the murder and neither was Gail. Mackie and Reed actually suspected that Gail's murder had been the work of a serial rapist that was operating near where Gail lived. On October 21, 1968, a 22-year-old victim was sexually assaulted near 18th Street and Avenue G and H. She had been grabbed from behind threatened with a knife and ordered to remove her clothes and lie down on her coat. The assailant then covered her mouth with her blouse. She described her attacker as, quote, quite young, about 18 years old. He had dark hair hanging down over his face, short at the back and was about 5 foot 2 to 5 foot 4 tall, quite small, not very heavy, wore dark colored clothing, trousers and a sweater, no hat or glasses. On November 13, 1968, a second victim had been assaulted near 18th Street between Avenues E and F. She was assaulted in a similar fashion to the first victim, ordered to remove her clothing and lie on her coat. After raping her, he told her to sit up and turn her head. He picked up her coat, dress, bra, and ran north towards 18th Street. This second victim described her attacker as a young person, 18 to 25 years old, of medium build, dark hair hanging over his forehead, thin face, harsh voice, wearing a white hard hat, work clothes and boots, and smelling of oil and gas. Both attacks happened approximately 8 to 10 blocks of where Gail's body had been found. In both assaults, the victims were grabbed by the assailant and taken to a nearby alley where they were directed to remove their clothing. The assailant had a knife in each of the attacks, but the victims were not stabbed. Although the victims weren't robbed or stabbed or killed, the police viewed the circumstances of the assaults to be pretty similar to 
Gail Miller's rape and murder. There was also a third attempted assault on November 28, 1968. That third victim was walking home near the university area on Wiggins Avenue and Temperance Street around 9.30 p.m. when she was followed by a man who grabbed her and put his arm over her mouth, threatening her with a knife. He dragged her to a nearby alley and forced her to the ground and started forcibly to undress her. Fortunately, the headlights of an oncoming car interrupted the assault and the guy took off. The third victim said the guy was about 20, 20 years old, 5 foot 6, rather long hair, ear length, with sideburns circling up at the ends. Medium build, wearing a dark waist length jacket, soft material, uh, about 5 foot 7, and she noted that he was quite strong for his size. The circumstances of the 1968 assaults were similar, and although the police had not identified any suspects, they believed a single perpetrator committed all three assaults. The only problem with this theory is that many stranger rapes have similar MO or signatures. None of these rapes resulted in murder, but what should have been considered is that rape to murder is a progression and a lot of sexual killers start out as peeping toms, stalkers, and rapists before they move on to murder. The police investigated people on a list of known sexual offenders. They checked all of the names of previous sexual offenders and eventually eliminated them all as suspects for the earlier assaults and Gail Miller's murder. They also interviewed two of Gail's previous boyfriends, Les Spence and Dennis Elliott. Spence had been a past long-term boyfriend and Elliot had actually driven her home from a party the night before her murder, but both were eliminated early as suspects. Hi, this is Ross, the host of Smells Like Humans, a show about interesting and quirky human behavior. We bring humor, empathy, and warmth to topics such as relationships, dating, work, self-compassion, weddings, phobias, aging parents, travel mishaps, death, and many more. Ever wonder what happens at a cuddle party? We talk about it. Free-range kids in restaurants? We've got some thoughts. Bedtime stories for adults? We're on it. Light, fun, unscripted conversation and personal stories. Please join us by clicking the link in the show notes. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Then, on March 2, 1969, a man named Albert Cadrain walked into the Saskatoon police station with his brother Dennis in tow and told the desk sergeant that he had information regarding Gail Miller's murder. Lieutenant 
Charles Short ushered him into an interview room and took a statement from him, a statement that would lead detectives through a tunnel that afforded no view of any peripheral vision. Albert said that his friend that he hadn't seen in about a year showed up on the morning of the murder at his house at 9.05 a.m. unexpectedly, bringing with him two friends that Albert didn't know. One man was named Robert Wilson and the other a woman named Nicole John. This friend was named David Milgard, a then 16-year-old boy with a bit of a rebellious history. Albert said that when David and his friends arrived that morning, the first thing he said was that he had to leave town right away. David asked if Albert wanted to come with them, and Albert had initially agreed. David then stripped down to his underwear in the living room, swapping his dirty clothes, clothes that Albert swore had blood on them, for clean clothes shoving the dirty clothes into his suitcase. He then hopped into the car that they had arrived in, which turned out was Wilson's car, and drove around the block for reasons no one ever offered an explanation for. But the car broke down about a block away and he had to be towed to a garage. Albert was later suspicious of David when he learned of Gail Miller's murder because, quote, he always seemed to be in a hurry and talked a lot about cleaning the car, end quote. By this time, Milgard was in Winnipeg. Wilson had been arrested and was currently in jail in Regina, and Nicole had returned to her home in Regina, so officers set off to interview the trio separately. David Milgard was the oldest of four kids born to Joyce and Lorne Milgard. He had issues you could say from an early age. In fact, about five years old, the trouble with David started for his parents. Basically, he was a problem child, and the family had involved social workers, psychologists, and psychiatrists. He ran away from home in 1966 when he was 14, spent some time in the Yorkton Mental Health Clinic and the Saskatchewan Boys School, which he also ran away from. He spent some time of his own choosing in what was called hippie houses all over Regina, Edmonton, and as far west as Vancouver. He had a number of juvenile offenses behind him by the age of 16 for things like joyriding, drugs, and thefts, but there was no history of violence. His story of his whereabouts also lined up with the being in the vicinity of the murder at the time, making him someone the police were interested in following up on. According to David, on the evening of Thursday, January 30th, 1969, him and his friend Ronald Wilson decided to drive from Regina to Saskatoon and pick up his friend Albert Cadrain and get him to come with them to Vancouver. David admitted to planning to fund the trip and the drugs they used along the way by unconventional and illegal means. In fact, he admitted that around midnight that very night, him and Wilson broke into a grain elevator and stole a flashlight and also to stealing a battery for Wilson's 1956 Pontiac, which was already in pretty rough shape. While stealing the battery, both boys had actually managed to spill some battery acid on themselves, leaving burn marks on their clothing. David also readily admitted to having a hunting knife on him, but not a paring knife. The trio arrived in Saskatoon around 6.30 a.m. and Wilson was driving since it was his car. David didn't have an exact address for Albert, but he knew that he lived in the Pleasant Hill area and lived near that St. Mary's Church, very close to where Gail's body would be discovered just hours later. Not knowing exactly where they were going, they were kind of driving up and down between 20th and 22nd streets near that St. Mary's Church. 
They pulled over at one point to ask a woman in a dark coat for directions, but she wasn't able to help them, so they continued on only to get stuck in the snow at the intersection of Avenue N and 20th Street. They weren't able to push themselves out, so Wilson and John went in opposite directions to look for some help, leaving David in the car. They were only gone for a few minutes and returned when they didn't see anyone. Meanwhile, two guys driving a cream or white-colored Dodge came by and were able to push them out. So they continued on to the Travelier Motel, where David got out and asked the front desk manager for help finding St. Mary's Church, which he knew was very close to Albert's. And this was all around 7, 7.30 a.m. Finally, with the directions in hand, they headed to Albert's house again, only to get stuck again this time on Avenue T outside Walter and Sandra Danchuk's house. They noticed the stalled vehicle and Sandra invited them into her home to wait for the tow truck and neither her nor her husband noticed anything out of the ordinary other than some ripped and burn marks on the crotch area of his pants from the battery acid earlier that evening. The tow truck arrived, boosted the Pontiac and they were off again by 9 a.m. Remember that Albert said they arrived at 9.05 and that would be about right. At Albert's house lived Albert, his five-year-old brother Kenneth, and his sister Celine, who was about 20. 20 er, Celine remained upstairs in her bedroom. She didn't see the men until later that day and after they had already changed their clothes. Albert says there was blood on, the clo- on David's clothes and David says they were ripped and ruined from the battery acid. Now, Milgard's reason for, go- for going back out and driving a- that car was that was prone to breaking down was I like to drive and was sketchy to the police. Even more doubtful when Gail Miller's wallet was discovered only three doors down from Albert's place. Milgard told police that later that day they decided to drive next to Edmonton to visit his girlfriend named Sharon Williams. Also of noted suspicion was the mechanic at the station that the vehicle was towed to. He told the police that he thought it was odd that they had so quickly been able to get together enough money for a tow and the transmission repair. All three men returned to Regina on February 6th, not having made it to Vancouver as they had gotten word that Ronald Wilson's father was sick. Ronald Wilson was interviewed on March 3rd and gave the same account. In his statement, Wilson said, quote, At no time during the time we were in Saskatoon was David Milgard out of my sight for more than one or two minutes. The one time being when he drove the car around the block. This would be well after daylight. I never knew Dave to have a knife. I'm convinced that Dave Milgard never left our company during the morning we were in Saskatoon. All during this trip, there was never any mention about the murder of murder of a girl in Saskatoon. In fact, I didn't even know about this murder until the police told me today. In a note that was attached to Wilson's statement, Sergeant Rydell took the statement, and he's now deceased, said that during the interview with Wilson, quote, he appeared straightforward with nothing to hide. After the interview, his car was searched and came up with nothing. Nicole John was interviewed on March 11th. Now, Nicole said that all during the morning they were in Saskatoon, the three were always together and, quote, I am sure that David or Ron never left me for more than one or two minutes that morning, end quote. 
but for whatever reason, the police aren't buying it. And this is where the breakdown in this case happens. Now, there was a full investigation of this case done by both Justice Canada and the RCMP in, I believe, 2004. It is extremely detailed and provides a full picture of who interviewed who, what evidence was found, etc. But in my opinion, it completely whitewashes the fact that there was tunnel vision when it came to David Milgard as a suspect. They wanted him for the murder of Gail Miller and they were determined to make it fit. And it's right around this point that even the investigative report into the case admits that the link that they initially thought was between the rape cases and Gail Miller's murder starts to fall by the wayside and they stop working that angle and instead focus all their energy on David Milgard. So they keep interviewing everyone, keeping them under pressure. They go back and re-interview Albert Cadrain on March 5th, where he again mentions the blood on Milgard's clothing and the service station where they took the car, the mechanic that had mentioned that he was talking about cleaning out the car. These comments, plus the fact that Milgard had a criminal past and in their opinion seemed cagey in their first interview with him, make them suspicious of his involvement. So they go back and re-interview Nicole. Now this time the officers, for some reason, brought Albert with them to the inter- like into the interview. And Nicole now says that David struck her as a dangerous character and that she was afraid of him. Wilson stuck to his initial story in his second interview. And then they talked to Sharon Williams, who was Milgard's girlfriend at the time, and they had since broken up. Sharon didn't have much nice to say about Milgord anymore, telling them about some property-related crimes that he'd committed and said that he said that she believed that he was capable of murdering someone. Then they go back again to Nicole on April 14th. She was emphatic at that time that at no time during that morning would he have had the time to commit the murder and she recalled seeing no blood on Milgard's clothing although she was of the opinion that he was capable of an offense of this nature and acted strangely in Saskatoon. Officer Karsh, who interviewed Nicole that day, said this in his notes. Although there are many unanswered questions with regards to Milgard's activities on that particular morning, if one is to believe the girl, Nicole John, it appears that she is very convincing with her story then there is no way in which Milgard can be connected with this crime, end quote. On April 18th, they collected blood, saliva, and hair samples from David, and he was a type A, the same as the samples from the crime scene. Police said that he was cooperative but vague and evasive in his answers, but maintained the same story from his previous interview. During the week of May 21st to the 24th was a pivotal time in the case after a number of more interviews with Ronald Wilson and Nicole John. The Saskatoon police and the RCMP met together to discuss the case and decide the time had come to either eliminate Milgard or get him. This time, under a polygraph examination, Ronald said that Milgard had left the vehicle when it got stuck and when he came back he was running and out of breath. He also told the officers about their discussions about funding the trip by stealing a woman's purse or, quote, rolling someone. But the results of the polygraph are not admissible evidence. For whatever reason, be it wanting David to go down for Gail's murder or the repeated interviews and pressure that they were under to say what the police wanted to hear so that they could be done with it, 
Wilson now said that the paring knife that was found under Gail's body looked similar to the one that Milgard had on him during the trip. He says when he got back to the car, he said something to the effect of, I fixed her. He said he now suddenly remembered seeing blood on his pants and was acting nervous and occasionally screamed at times. When he pulled a makeup compact out of the glove box and asked him who it belonged to, David grabbed it and threw it out the window. He continued to say that Milgard told him while in Calgary that he had grabbed a girl in Saskatoon and had tried to take her purse. However, she fought and he had jabbed her with a knife and had put her purse in a trash can and he had thought she would be all right. Wilson gave a second statement to Karsh the following morning, adding that when Milgard left the vehicle, Wilson also left the vehicle to look for help. And when he returned to the car, Nicole was almost hysterical. Wilson asked her what was wrong, and she told Wilson that she saw Milgard carry and drag a girl down the lane and bring out a knife and stab her a few times. Nicole, in her new statement, suddenly changed her story as well, after arriving in Saskatoon, they drove around looking for Kadrain's house and stopped to talk to a girl. Milgard asked the girl for directions and offered her a ride, which the girl refused. Milgard then called her a stupid bitch. After they drove away about a half a block, the vehicle got stuck at the entrance to the alley behind the funeral home. Wilson and Milgard got out and tried to push, but couldn't get the vehicle out. Milgard and Wilson went to look for help, with Milgard going in the direction of where they had spoken to the girl and Wilson going in the other direction. The next recollection that, that Nicole had is seeing David in the alley on the right side of the car holding that same girl that he had spoken to just a few minutes before. She said that she saw him grab her purse and he reached into one of his pockets, pulled out the knife in his right hand and she says she saw him stabbing the girl with the knife and then Milgard taking her around the corner of the alley. Nicole then says she ran in the direction that Wilson had gone and recalls running down the street but not seeing anyone. The next thing she says is that she's, that she's sitting in the car again but she didn't know how she got back there. She seemed to recall seeing Milgard putting a purse into a garbage can, although she didn't remember what time that was or where it was when she saw it. She then recalled Milgard returning to the car, sitting beside her, and then she moved over because she didn't want to sit anywhere near him. She did not, however, recall seeing blood on Milgard's clothing or seeing that knife ever again. She says it was her that had looked in the glove compartment of Wilson's car for a map and had found a cosmetic case, which she opened up. There was a compact lipstick and eyeshadow, and she asked whose it was uh, that nobody knew and that Milgard had just grabbed it and threw it all out the window. She also described Milgard's driving at the time as being very fast. And Nicole said that she hadn't told anyone about witnessing the murder and didn't recall actually witnessing a murder until the day before when she talked to Detective Roberts, to whom she gave her the follow-up statement. <laughs> so with that, David Milgard was arrested and charged with the murder of Gail Miller on May 30th, 1969.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On Sunday, January 18th, 1970, which was the night before the trial was to begin, and exactly one year later after Gail had been murdered, Ronald Wilson suddenly had a revelation that there had been a party in a motel room and that a guy named Craig Melnick and another named George Lapchuk had told Wilson that David had actually reenacted the killing of Gail Miller to them. When interviewed, Melnick and Lapchuk told investigators that there had been a party at the Park Lane Motel in Regina in early May of 1969 and that Milgard had been there and was high at the time. A news report had come on and Lapchuk suggested to Milgard that he had killed Gail and at that point Milgard had grabbed a pillow on the bed, made stabbing motions and admitted that he had stabbed and raped Gail. According to Melnick, Milgard Milgard quote went crazy he stabbed the pillow with his hand and was saying I killed her I fixed her and then he rolled off the bed laughing hysterically end quote Lapchuk described Milgard as saying quote he said yeah I did it then he blew up and started to stab with his hand and asked where's my paring knife he said yeah I stabbed her I stabbed her 14 times and then she died he says that he got scared and dropped the subject and no more was said about it Both Ronald Wilson and Nicole John's testimony at the preliminary hearing and the trial itself changed a bit from their initial and secondary interviews, which should have tipped someone off that they were both maybe not the most credible witnesses. Nicole in particular omitted the entirety of her statements about seeing David stab Gail. Blood evidence was not helpful to David's case because both the perpetrator and him were type A secretors, but then so were a lot of people. After a day of deliberations, the jury came back guilty and David Milgard was sentenced to life in prison with no parole eligibility for 10 years. He, of course, appealed, which was dismissed on January 5th, 1971. He was denied his request to appeal higher to the Supreme Court of Canada in November of 1971 and was required to serve out his sentence with no more options for appeal. And that would have been the end of things had David's mom, Joyce, not continued her fight for him and his innocence, of which David never wavered that he had been wrongfully convicted for something that he didn't do. But now we have to return to 1970, the time period when David was sitting in jail waiting for his trial. On the night of February 20. February 21st, 1970, in Saskatoon on 20th Avenue and Avenue V, a woman was grabbed from behind, her her coat torn off, and struck four or five times. She was a fighter, and she bit his finger, forcing him to let go, and she got away. The police investigated, but never even thought that maybe this attack was similar to the rapes from 1968 to 1969, and certainly didn't make any connection to Gail Miller's murder. After all, that one was solved. And then the rapes in Saskatoon stopped. Five months later in Winnipeg in the neighborhood of Fort Gary on August 2nd, 1970, a woman was finishing up her shift at the hospital. And this was late at night. She was grabbed from behind and dragged into the nearby bushes. 
She was threatened not to scream, and the man bit her on her breasts and assaulted her sexually. He also punched her several times in the face. She was also a fighter and tried to fend off by biting and kicking and pulling on his hair, but he managed to get her down on the ground by choking her with his arm. He tied her hands and ankles behind her back using her own stockings and grabbed the money from her wallet and took off. Then on September 19, 1970, only a month and a bit later, another woman was assaulted in the Fort Gary area. This time he used the woman's coat to cover her face. Now, fortunately, this time he was caught in the act when passerbys flagged down police and arrested him on the spot. So who was the guy that they caught trying to rape this victim? Well, a guy named Larry Fisher, who you might remember as the construction guy with the hard hat who was half-heartedly questioned when Gail Miller was murdered. It turns out that besides living in the exact same house as David Milgard was that day, he was also a roommate of Albert Cadrain's. He had left Saskatoon in July 1970 to work on a construction project in Winnipeg. He confessed readily to the attempted rape that day and the August 2nd one. So the Winnipeg police write a letter to the Saskatoon police, quote, in the hope that it may help clear up any similar offenses that have occurred in your jurisdiction, end quote. And of course, they came back with the October and November rapes, but not Gail Miller's murder. Uh, Larry Fisher at first denied the rapes in Saskatoon, but then later confessed to those offenses as well. But in their defense, the police, I mean, Larry Fisher was not previously known to the police and did not have a criminal history that would have piqued their interest at the time of Gail Miller's murder or the 1969 rapes in Saskatoon. But he pled guilty to everything. Fisher pled guilty to his Manitoba charges on May 28, 1971 and received 13 and a half years and was transferred to the Prince Albert Penitentiary. Then, on June 2, 1971, in exchange for guilty pleas to all four charges, the Saskatchewan Attorney, Attorney General agreed not to seek additional jail time. He was also concerned that if they rejected Fisher's plea arrangement, the Crown might not be able to prove the offences if the matter went to trial. Three of the four victims could not identify him. So by June 1971... David Milgard is now in jail for the murder of Gail Miller and his final bid for an appeal will be tossed out in November of that year. And Larry Fisher is now in jail for a 13-year jail term for four rapes in total, two of them in the vicinity where Gail Miller was raped and murdered and matching the description of the bus driver and one of his regular passengers. Now, this is where there's a lot of dispute regarding this whole thing. Milgard's lawyers would later argue that this was a cover-up, a quick guilty plea so that no one starts to see the comparisons of the rapes to Gail's murder, but they, they suspected at the time that they may have the wrong guy and didn't bother to say anything to anyone. Personally, I don't think it was an intentional cover-up, just that tunnel vision and lack of just really looking at all angles in the first place. Fisher was released from prison on supervised leave on January 26, 1980, after serving 10 of his 13 years. On March 31st, so only two months later, he sexually assaulted and cut the throat of a 58-year-old woman in North Battleford, Saskatchewan. 
That time, he was quickly found and arrested and charged with yet another rape and attempted murder. How this guy evaded capture since 1969, I will never know. It turns out that Lisa Joy, who became actually good friends with David Milgard throughout the years, wrote a piece for Sask Today that was literally posted during my research for this case. And in her article, she talks about the early time that David spent in prison. Number one, he wasn't told anything about Larry Fisher's arrest for the rapes in Saskatoon during that time period. The prosecutor in the Fisher case claims that he never put the pieces together, so David's appeals came and went without any added information about another possible suspect. Milgard's lawyer, David Asper, had argued that someone in the Saskatchewan government didn't want too many people aware of Fisher's 1971 confession to the rapes because it would have raised questions about whether he was responsible for Miller's rape and murder. Asper and Milgard, along with his mum Joyce, would claim that there had been a massive cover-up and Asper told the Globe and Mail in 1992, quote, the frightening question about this is how many people were involved in it, who was calling the shots, and why, end quote. Now, Joyce Milgard told Joy that they had found out that every time David was up for parole, the Crown, the crown Prosecutor in his case, Bob Caldwell, would find out who was going to be sitting on the panel and send them photos of Gail Miller's body with a letter basically saying that David was a monster and that he should never be let out. Despite prison reports that cited that David Milgard was a gentle and quiet soul. On March 1970, a report said that he was a quiet, soft-spoken individual who impresses as being a person who is extremely depressed but hides the depression behind a smile. He repeatedly insists on his innocence. On March 13, 1971, a caseworker said, quote, Very difficult to believe that this boy could be guilty of this offense, a defenseless, immature young man incapable of facing a life sentence at this time, deeply depressed, very emotional, end quote. On August 4th, 1971, a prison psychiatrist report described Milgard as frightening young inmate, adding, he claims he's innocent vehemently and does not appear to me to be the criminal type. In March 1972, Milgard was transferred to Dorchester in New Brunswick, and shortly after, Joyce received notice that David had actually been gang raped. Joyce told Joy, that, quote, guards would entertain themselves by throwing tear gas into the solitary confinement cells. David quickly learned to place his head over the toilet and put a towel on it to minimize the burning to his face and make breathing easier. On August 17, 1971, prison staff found him on his bunk bed with a number of self-inflicted slash wounds on his forearms quote he had tried to take his life he put sheets on the floor of his cell to soak up the blood he noticed he wasn't dying so he reached over and pulled a vein out of his wrist and cut it and so that fall he tried to kill himself again by swallowing wires um, hoping that they were going to just tear open his insides and then he as a result of that he required emergency surgery and then another suicide attempt um, he drank some leather cleaner so then in March 1972 Milgard actually escaped with some other inmates but their truck had broke down and then they fled into the woods and then the dogs tracked him down 
Quote, David told us the guards just stood there and let the dogs chew on them. He said that afterward, when they got back to the prison, the guards beat him. He said that he had been beaten before, but never, ever with such brutality. End quote. In May 1980, he escaped again, this time for 77 days before surrendering to the Toronto police. Um, He had actually put his hands up in surrender and they shot him in the back. Um, He narrowly survived that attempt. And according to Joyce, prison just destroyed his mind and soon he needed medication. Then on, on August 28, 1980... Linda Fisher, who was now divorced from Larry, showed up at the Saskatoon police station at four in the morning to tell the police that she thought that her ex-husband had murdered Gail Miller in 1969. And Inspector Kenneth Wagner did take the time to take her report. She said that she had been arguing with Larry on the morning of that murder uh, when the news story came on the radio about it. She then accused Larry of having killed the nurse. Linda Fisher said that she had lost a paring knife around that time and thought that it might have been used by Larry. She described Larry's reaction to being accused as being shocked and then went on to describe the describe what this paring knife looked like. It had a wooden handle uh, with rivets. And she told the police that Larry had never been questioned about the crime and she thought that David Milgard was innocent. Linda says that it, when Larry was first convicted from the of the Fort Gary uh, crimes, that's kind of when she first got suspicious about him with in connection to Gail Miller's m- murder, and that she had confronted him in the Prince Albert Penitentiary uh, and asked him outright if he had killed the nurse. Now, at that time, he denied having any involvement in it. But she was still concerned. She started to share her suspicions about him with some family members and friends. And before she actually came to the police station that day, she had actually went to the public library to search for a picture of the murder weapon that was actually used in Gail Miller's murder and then compared it with the missing paring knife that she had. Detective Wagner passed on her statement to the investigation division for follow-up and Linda's and Linda's statement and Wagner's report were placed into Gail Miller's police file. And according to the investigation of the investigation that Justice Canada claimed, quote, I am satisfied that the failure of Saskatoon police to follow up on her report in 1980 was a decision made in good faith, but it was a mistake. The matter of following up such a report should not be left in the discretion of the police. There should be a policy referring referral of such reports to the Office of the Director of Public Prosecutions. Now, David Milgard in the years following was always denied parole. So in December 1980, Joyce issued a news relief seeking information to help prove her son's innocence. And she offered a $10,000 reward and began to gather a few supporters, becoming known as the Milgard Group. Now, this group of supporters, which included the Innocence Project, started their own investigation and interviewed many of the witnesses and pursued a number of leads. And one of the many things that they discovered was that Albert Kadrain, who was the one that had started this whole suspicion against Milgard, yeah, it turns out he was a paid informant working for the police and had actually made $2,000 off of his information. On December 28, 1988... 
almost 19 years after his conviction, Milgard made his first application to the federal minister for some kind of remedy under Section 690. And now that application was reviewed and investigated by the federal justice lawyers. And on February 27, 1991, federal minister Kim Campbell denied his application. I'm sorry, it's madam. If you want your if you want your son to have a fair hearing, don't approach me personally. I'm sorry. It's quite an. I'm sorry, but I want her to have her son to have a hearing that will withstand scrutiny by the court. Comment on the substantive. Excuse me, please. Sorry. 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 Meanwhile, in 1991. Private investigator Paul Henderson and Centuron Minister Head Jim McClowski assembled a case against Larry Fisher showing some of the similarities between his crime and Gail Miller's murder. They said that they also found some evidence um, that the authorities had found evidence that the police had actually hid Larry Fisher's conviction from his victims. So this inquiry found that the police had actually been alerted to look for a construction worker wearing a hard hat and who usually caught the bus at Avenue O and 20th Street, um, but hadn't been on the bus that morning. And that Larry Fisher had been identified in that connection. But when interviewed, he said that he went to work on that morning. Uh, He wasn't interviewed as a suspect, but rather as a witness who may have observed something that morning. And the police never followed up to see whether Fisher had actually gone to work that day. On August 16th, 1991, he filed a second application under Section 690. On November 28th, 1991, the federal minister referred the matter to the Supreme Court of Canada for a public hearing and for the court's advice on whether Milgard's continued conviction would constitute a miscarriage of justice. Of course, this was only after public pressure that Milgard in the court of public opinion had been wrongfully convicted. After hearing the evidence and submissions, the federal minister and Saskatchewan justice, the court decided that although Milgard had not proven his innocence, his continued con- his continued conviction would constitute a miscarriage of justice unless he was granted a new trial to allow the jury to consider new evidence. And the federal minister set aside Milgard's conviction in April of 1992, which did result in David Milgard's release from prison, and he had been ordered a new trial. However, the stay of conviction didn't mean that he had cleared his name. Now, the Gail Miller murder investigation was not actually reopened until July 1997, when DNA from Gail Miller's clothing was finally tested and found to have conclusively not been from Milgard and matched Larry Fisher exactly. Finally, Fisher was charged with Gail's murder and was subsequently convicted on November 22, 1999. David Milgard was awarded $10 million in damages for the 23 years that he had spent in prison for a crime that he never committed. 
And in 2004, the government of Saskatchewan ordered a public inquiry into the causes of David's wrongful conviction. Now, as I said, this 600 plus page report is a whitewashed version of the events, painting the police and prosecutors in their best light. And I don't completely buy it. It just totally feels like it was tunnel vision from the very beginning. Now, one of the biggest factors was Albert Cadrain being a police informant and motivated by money to feed the police a suspect. And then the repeated harassing and questioning of Ronald and Nicole. Years later, Ronald um, spoke to media about him and Nicole had been completely pressured into incriminating David. Um, The time that he made his false statement... He had actually been in police custody for two days, which um, meant, of course, that he was coming down from his high. And now Ron was a heavy user of a number of different drugs. And so during his polygraphs um, test, it just kind of came to him that if he he could get out of the interview and just kind of go back to his life, if he just changed his answers to match what he thought the police wanted to hear. Quote, it got to the point where I didn't care. I'd gone a couple of days without any drugs and it was starting to hurt. So, of course, when he was left alone for a few moments in the same room as Nicole, he just kind of encouraged her to give the police what they wanted and to, quote, sink their friend David. Now, Commissioner McCollum in the 2004 report even says of Nicole's statement, quote, in her statement of May 24th, 1969, Nicole John said that she saw Milgard stab a woman. That cannot be true. How then did she come to say it? I do not find that she deliberately lied, and I do not find that Roberts induced her to lie, although both must have acknowledged as possibilities. We know, however, that Roberts interrogated her in the belief that Milgard was the killer and that he showed her the victim's bloody garment, asking what if this had been your sister. The tactic produced the desired result. I must conclude that he somehow pressured Nicole John into telling him what he thought to be the truth. Now, after his release from prison in 1992, um, David Milgard was 40 years old and he remained kind of a bit of a hippie. And he certainly enjoyed the free love attitudes of the 1960s that where he had kind of mentally gotten stuck in and never really grew out of. But he advocated for prisoners' rights. He lectured law students at the universities across the country and spoke against Canada's punitive justice system and advocating for what he called a restorative justice system. I honestly believe that uh, the justice model in this country is not a good model. 80% of the people that live inside our penitentiaries today have no real reason to be kept there. There is no need for it. It will not do them any good. Now, Milgard repeatedly called on the federal government for an independent criminal case review to make it easier and faster for potentially wrongfully convicted people to have applications renewed. In June 2015, Larry Fisher, who was the real killer of Gail Miller, died in prison at the age of 65 at the Pacific Institution in Abbotsford, B.C., In 2020, so 50 years after Milgard's wrongful conviction, the University of Manitoba announced that they were presenting him with with an honorary doctor of law degree. On May 15th, 2022, 
David Milgard passed away at 69 due to complications from pneumonia, and he had been living in Cochrane with his two teenage children at the time. Dr. Patrick Bale, a psychologist that testified at the Saskatchewan Inquiry on his behalf, said in his testimony, quote, his life was always defined by something that he didn't do. He wanted the opportunity to define his life on the basis of things that were important to him. David wants to be a father to his children. David wants to be married to his wife. And David just wants to have a quiet existence. But even if David became prime minister, the day that David dies, the first line of his obituary is going to be David Milgard, who spent 23 years in prison for a wrongful conviction and later went on to be prime minister. And that was the murder of Gail Miller and the wrongful conviction of David Milgard. Sorry, this was a bit long-winded, lots of players. I, I know it's a bit complex, but like I said, I wanted to be able to tell the entire story. For us Canadians, it became a, important um, in the news again because he just passed away, um, like I said, in May of 2022. Uh, it, it was obviously a huge case and one one of the really the biggest and most well-known cases of a wrongful conviction. And I, I just find so many times that these kind of cases... the the, the initial murder for Gail Miller just got completely overshadowed. And I think a lot of people know exactly who David Milgard is, but not everybody knows even who, who it was that he was convicted of murdering. So I wanted to be able to tell Gail's story and, and tell it in a way that, you know, sort of gives a, a picture of how these kind of wrongful convictions can happen. Um, obviously, in 1969, they didn't have the same technology that we do today, which hopefully prevents some wrongful convictions when there's no physical evidence. But just goes to show when you have tunnel vision and you just you think that you're you know you convince yourself that somebody's done it, and then it turns out that they didn't. It's like you just yeah you just totally get that tunnel vision and you go in one that one direction and you just cannot see past it so i think it's an important case for uh for us to consider that these you know don't don't necessarily believe everything you read in the or hear about in the media you just you just never know until it actually comes out of course until you know what the actual evidence is now i would love to play us out with wheat kings by the tragically hip as a song written by Gord Downey for David Milgard, but I don't have the rights to it. You would think a Canadian song would not be that expensive to use. It's like one little song, but trust me, it is expensive. So we're not going to do that. If you are not familiar with the Tragically Hip, I would encourage you to go search them up on the internets and listen to every single one of their songs, particularly Wheat King's. It has literally been on loop in my head since I started the research on this case. And with that, I hope that you are going to join me again next week for another case. And as I always say, thank you for listening. When you need 
need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.